Welcome. This is a new year, a new podcast, and a new Bible reading plan. I'm so glad you're with us. Um, and uh, welcome to 2023, the story of the Old Testament Bible reading plan. For this is week one for the week of January 1st through uh, January 7th. Uh, this year, as part of our MMBC uh, Bible reading together, we want to try to just uh, walk through the scriptures together and uh, to understand, better understand uh, the Bible, where God speaks to us in his written word. And we're going to do that by reading through the narrative, the historical story parts of uh, the Old Testament. Uh, we're going to uh, try to understand and grasp uh, how what we read in the New Testament, we read the whole New Testament last year, but how that fits into and is led up to by the Old Testament scriptures. And what we're hoping to see is that the Old Testament contains the, the same God, the same gospel, the same problem that you and I have, uh, sin, uh, but also the same salvation offered to us through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Um, one of the things I, I, I sometimes say was, um, right, we have the New Testament, which we, we as Christians obviously always say that's the, the gospel of Christ. And playing off of the, uh, the Mormons who, who claim to have uh, the Book of Mormon, uh, which is, they call it, another testament of Jesus Christ. Well, we, we reject that, obviously, but I, I like to say that the Old Testament is another testament of Jesus Christ. So often when we read the Old Testament scriptures, we read them and we read them uh, uh, perhaps as nothing more than uh, moral examples. Maybe we read them and we say, well, this is what Noah did, therefore we should be this way. This is what Abraham did, therefore we should be like Abraham. And while there are certain obvious uh, lessons and, and while we don't deny that Abraham and Noah and David can serve as examples of faithfulness, of, uh, of uh, proper examples for Christian behavior, and that is true, that is not their primary purpose. The primary purpose of the Old Testament is to preach to us the gospel before it came and before it was um, accomplished in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So the Old Testament scriptures, just as much as the New Testament, are full of Christ. Now, Christ is not, we, we might not recognize him. Uh, in, the, in the Old Testament saints, though they had a confidence and their, their, their faith was not as, um, did not have all the clarity that ours does, does today, um, it did not. It does not understand all the details uh, like ours do. Cause, uh, I'm speaking like a hick, aren't I? Like ours does, uh, because of the the revelation and the accomplishment of the cross of Christ and all of those details. But if you were to cut the Old Testament anywhere, at any point, at any book, it bleeds Christ, just as the New Testament does. The Old Testament, just as much as the New Testament, is cross shaped. That is our conviction as Christians. That is our conviction as those who believe that Jesus Christ is the God of Israel. 
that he is the promised one of Israel, that he is the son of David, the great high priest, the great prophet, God with us, Emmanuel. And so, as we walk through the Old Testament scriptures, we read them as Christians. We do not read them. It would be improper. In fact, Jesus would tell us um, in the New Testament um, that we, we we can't help but see him in the Old Testament scriptures. He says to the Jews in John chapter five, uh, you search for the, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have life and it is they that bear witness about me. They, the whole Old Testament bears witness about me. And then afterwards in Luke 24, after his resurrection, we see these two men walking on the road to Emmaus and Jesus joins them and they don't know it's Jesus. And uh, Jesus, uh, they're talking, right? And they say, we thought Jesus of Nazareth was to be the one who was going to uh, save us and be the Messiah and all that. And Jesus tells them, oh, you slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have written. (laughs) You have not read the Bible, have you? That's fascinating. Jesus' response is not, you should see something new that I've done that wasn't talked about in the Old Testament. Jesus is, uh, the way Jesus understands it is everything that was talked about and spoken about in the Old Testament is all about me. In fact, if it's not about me, then, uh, then, then I'm not the true one that's come. And so what we see is that Jesus consistently highlights his connection to and fulfillment of and presence in the Old Testament scriptures. And we'll see that as we go throughout the, uh, the Old Testament narrative. I really love the Old Testament. And, and part of it is, too, is, is because it's, it's exciting because um, so we, we're, we're used to hearing the New Testament we're used to hearing the Gospels. We're used to hearing the, the book of Romans. But we need to remember that all of those writings were based off of the Old Testament. And also, the Old Testament describes the same gospel, the same Christ, the same salvation that we experience, but it does so in different terms and under different ways. Um, and so it's exciting, in a sense, to learn new vocabulary, new ways of understanding the same message. And then whenever we take that, that new, the new vocabulary, the new message that we've seen in the Old Testament, boy, certain passages in the New Testament begin to pop out, and then the whole thing just comes together, doesn't it? So that's what we want to do in this. We want to read the Old Testament as Christians as those who are filled with the Spirit, as those who recognize Jesus of Nazareth as not only the Messiah, but also as the God of the Old Testament. Because we believe in the Trinity, don't we? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And uh, we believe that Jesus Christ is the God-man. Therefore, he is present as God in the Old Testament, and we'll see him appear in Uh, foreshadowing in pre-incarnate ways as the angel of the Lord and in various different ways. We'll we'll see that. That's going to be so exciting um, as we go through the Old Testament. Okay. Well, this week we're reading through uh, Genesis 1 through Genesis 12. Now, that's a lot of stuff. That's a whole lot of material to cover. And um, as we 
this week I'm going to try to, this, this podcast may go a little long because I want to cover so much stuff uh, because there's so much crammed into these first chapters. In many ways, um, chapters 1 through really 11 leading up to Abraham are the preface, are kind of like leading up to the story of Abraham. Because remember, the book of Genesis written by Moses was written by Moses uh, for the people of God, for Israel after their redemption from uh, Egypt. And really, the whole book of Genesis is giving the background and the historical basis uh, and the foundations for God's relationship with Israel, right? So he's going to eventually end by leading us to Jacob, right? From where we get Israel, right? Is Jacob is Israel, his new name. And so he's leading us and showing Israel how these, these Israelites, their redemption from Egypt is connected and part of a much bigger plan. They were not simply redeemed just to be redeemed. They were redeemed because God loved them, but also this is part of a bigger story and a bigger purpose and plan of God to redeem all the families of the earth, to bless all the families of the earth as Paul or as God will, uh, the Lord will tell Abraham in Genesis 12. And that promise is reiterated throughout the whole rest of Genesis and in the whole rest of the Old Testament, as a matter of fact. But in doing that, the story of Abraham is part of the story of the world after Noah, which is part of the story of, of Adam, which is part of the story of the heavens and the earth, which is all part of the story of the creator God in Genesis 1.1. So everything is anchored and drawn back to that God of all creation who owns the whole world, not simply some real estate in the Middle East. No, his plan, his purpose, his goal has always been a universal, worldwide uh, uh, people. And so that is what is happening here is God through Moses. Remember, if you're an Israelite and you've just been redeemed and now you're hearing, uh, you're, you're hearing the, this this scripture read to you of this creation narrative and then Adam and then the fall and, and um, Noah and Abraham and all these stories, all of these things are showing you how you got, how, how did we get to where we're at? And you realize uh, who you are and your identity of what's happened, uh, who God is for you. And so think about that as we also read throughout these passages of what it would have been like to be an Old Testament Israelite under Moses hearing these stories. You may have heard these stories in some form or another, but this is an inspired version of them, uh, clearly authoritative version written down for God's people. And think about how they were, were reflecting upon that and, and what this would have meant to them in the wilderness. So that'll be helpful as, as we go through uh, this passage. So the book opens up and uh, with uh, Genesis chapter one, with those very famous words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he says, then in verse two, the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face 
of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The Bible opens up with these majestic words, in the beginning. At the very front, at the very beginning of everything, we are brought to see God. God creates. This word is a word that is used uh, to describe only action that God does. We can make certain things, but we can never ultimately create out of nothing as God does. And God creates the heavens and the earth. He creates it in love. It's, it's fascinating that the picture we have of God at the very beginning of creation is that he creates the material world. Now, that's very important, by the way, first of all, as a, as a note, because sometimes we have this, uh, we separate our body and our soul, or we think, um, we think about heaven as being a place where we'll simply be spirits without bodies. But the the point of the resurrection and the point of the Christian faith, and, and in fact, the point of creation is that God is not ashamed of material stuff. God is the God who makes dirt. He's the God who makes trees and leaves and animals and people and dust and stars and bugs and all of these things. In a sense, God is a God who gets his hands dirty. He, he loves the material world. And that's very important for us to remember because we are as creatures, body and soul, and all of that flows from the God who spoke us into existence. And our material bodies are not, are not something to be uh, disregarded or hated or uh, forgotten about, even in the ultimate purposes of God's salvation. God is going to raise us so that we are body and soul forever. Also notice here, he right away talks about in the beginning, God. Now, God created the heavens and the earth by his word, we see. And we as Christians ultimately know that this word that comes from God is also God. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In the beginning, God the Father created by the Son the heavens and the earth. And also then we see the state of the earth. Notice it's formless. It's without void. There's darkness over the face of the deep. There's waters here. And who's there but the Spirit of God? All three persons of the Trinity are here at the very beginning of creation. The Spirit hovering over the face of the waters. It's fascinating that in Second uh, in, uh, Peter, uh, he describes, uh, he says this uh, fascinating thing uh, about creation. He says that, uh, let me read it here. Where is it at here? Um yeah, verse 5, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 5. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. He says here, Peter says, the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. 
God spoke, and through this water, through his word, he created the world. So there's a sense in which, notice right away, water and the spirit and God and his speaking are all brought together. And and water is, in a sense, now I don't want to, I don't want to like, um, read too much into this, but it is fascinating that water is mentioned as being the thing from, from which life is, is then, uh, is springs of the whole earth comes from water. Water is associated with this creation. And we know, right, you can't live without water. You can't, uh, life cannot exist without water. Even whenever people go to look at a faraway planets, right? What are they looking for? They're looking for signs of water because where water is life can happen. And God here, as the source of life, the Holy Spirit of God is hovering, brooding, just, just um, uh, covering over the 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 uh, face of the waters, and He's about to bring about the first creation. Well, ultimately, that reminds us later on, doesn't it, of the Spirit of God who also hovers over the waters later on in this book, but also in the baptism of Jesus. When the Spirit of God descended upon Christ, the Son of God, over the waters, and that new creation was seen that it it is taking place in the person of Jesus Christ. There are six days of creation, and right away notice the first thing God says in verse 3, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. It's fascinating. The first thing God decides to make is light. The light shines into and overcomes the darkness. Our God is a God of light. Uh, If you were to read some of the ancient uh, creation stories and myths that had been written whenever Moses is writing this, and they had been written maybe before as well, Creation often came about because of chaos in the gods or, or violence between some gods. Um, it, was, it was never out of just pure love. And right away, we see something so different with our God. There's no violence. There's no competitor with him. No other gods or beings. Uh, no motive other than the fact that God says, let there be light. This highlights the goodness of God right away as a creator. And you can think about an Israelite. You've just been redeemed from Egypt, and you've maybe heard the creation stories. And we've, we, elsewhere in the Old Testament, we're told that even in Egypt, they were still clinging to the idols of Egypt and all of their creation stories and the stories about what their God supposedly had done and how they had created the world. But here is a God who is at the very beginning of beginnings. He was beyond time. And here he is hovering, the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters, and he speaks, let there be light. There's no violence, no forced anything. God speaks, and it happens. And that's another important thing to note throughout this narrative here of creation. Learning about God right away is when he speaks, it's not as if God was saying, I really hope the light will come. God speaks, and his, his speech is creative speech. You and I can speak things and say, uh, you know, uh, we can tell our children to do something and command them to do something, but the reality is they can choose whether or not to obey that command or not. 
But here, when God speaks, his speech accomplishes what he sends it to do. Why? Because the Spirit of God is taking the Word of God and accomplishing his purpose. He is the omnipotent, good creator who says, let there be light. He separates the light from the darkness. And notice also the movement of this refrain that we're going to see at the end of day one is the same refrain we're going to see throughout the first six days, which is, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. Notice creation moves from evening into morning, from darkness, so to speak, to light. This is the way the Hebrews calculated their days uh, was from one of evening. The day began in the evening. And so similarly here, the days of creation, the movement of creation, the way things go is God is moving and creating things by moving them towards light, towards goodness, towards greater goodness, greater light. Till eventually, his goal ultimately, as we see in Revelation, is to fill the whole world with light, where there is no moon and there is no night. And the Lamb of God is the lamp that shines in the presence of his people. So, God creates light. Now, another thing that's fascinating to notice here about the creation days is that they parallel each other. They parallel, and there is, there's an interesting pattern here. So, for instance, day one, God creates light. Day two, God creates the heavens and separates the heavens from the waters. Day three, God creates the earth, the seas, and then we have plant life. God says, let the earth bring forth. But then on day four, he creates lights in the heavens. So, the light that had been created in day one is mirrored in day four with the individual lights now, the sun, the moon, and the stars um, that, that now begin to fill the heavens. He, on day two, had created, remember, the heavens and separated them from the waters. Well, now on day five, he fills those heavens and waters with living creatures in the sea and in the air. On day three, remember, he had pulled the earth together and brought about dry land and put plant life there. Well, now he fills the dry land with living creatures on the earth, including mankind, as we see. So God begins by creating, in a sense, the the sphere, uh, whether it be heaven, earth, or the seas, and the light. And then he fills those things in the latter days with the individual lights, with the sea, with the sea creatures, and with the birds, and the things of the air, and then with the living creatures on the earth, and then caps it all off with mankind. Now, it's fascinating, again, to read this creation narrative about what mankind is and who we are, because whenever you read Genesis chapter 1, right, we see them, and, and also notice, by the way, every refrain says, and God saw that it was, it was good, and eventually he'll say it is very good. Uh, verse 26 of chapter one, God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Now, this is very important because this is the basic understanding of what it means to be human. Notice this. When God creates the world, he creates it full of beauty, full of goodness, full of love, full of light and life, because in him is life. And his creation is a reflection of the fullness of the life-giving power 
power of the God who forms everything out of the water by the Spirit, by his word. And notice what he caps off his creation with. God does not say in verse 26, let us make a servant for ourselves. It doesn't say that, does he? Now, it is true. It is an honor to be a servant of God, and we should want to, and we do delight to serve God, but that's not the word he uses here. It's fascinating. God does not view humanity as slaves for himself. God does not need us. And if you were to read some of the ancient Near Eastern uh, myths and such, you would see that oftentimes the men, mankind was viewed as essentially a servant or a slave of, of the gods, to serve the gods um, as if they, because they needed it or something. It's also similar in a sense that the basic understanding, as far as I know, of, for instance, a religion like Islam, which means surrender, is that the core identity of us as humans is that we are to be, we are to be servants who submit to, to uh, in, in their understanding, Allah. But Christianity starts on a different place. We do want to serve the Lord. We should surrender to the Lord. But our essential identity is as his image bearers. We automatically are, while the word is not used, we are like sons and daughters. Uh, he creates us in his image. That same idea is going to be used later on in Genesis chapter 5 when we see that Adam fathers people in his image. Well, here, God, the creator, whom we now know in the New Testament as the Father, creates us in his image. Well, who is his image? Well, the Son. We were made to be like the Son of God. We were made to be small s sons and daughters of God, to whom he was lavishing everything, giving everything, pouring out everything to us, to enjoy. He gives them the garden. He gives them the animals. He gives them the food. He gives them this whole creation, showering his love and his grace upon this humanity. It's such a different view of God, isn't it? God is not a killjoy. God is not evil. God is not here to destroy your fun. God is the source of life. And he poured out nothing but blessing and love and kindness upon mankind at our first creation. He gave them all the food they could ever need. He gave them rule and authority and, and, and uh, dominion over the whole earth. And he makes us in his image. He gives us dominion to reflect who he is. And then he invites us into his rest. At the very beginning of chapter 2, it says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. On the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now notice, we do not read this verse, and there was evening and there was morning the seventh day. That's fascinating, and that's intentional by Moses. There's a sense in which, right, God was the Sabbath day, the seventh day, God set up 
inviting mankind, inviting all of creation, really, to enter into his rest. This was to remind mankind and to point to the fact that ultimately mankind was made not simply for mortal life, but immortal life. We were made to be with God forever, to enjoy his presence and communion with him forever. And he called them and calls us into his rest. The idea of making something holy or setting it apart has the idea of setting it apart for divine service, for different work, uh, to devote it to another purpose than the other six days. Uh, it, It seems very likely that Adam and Eve would have understood, the first parents would have understood that the seventh day was in a sense, was was unique in the sense in which it was supposed to be a day devoted to being with God, to resting with God, to delighting in God, to being refreshed in and with the Lord and with each other as his image bearers. That ultimately is... Uh, and, and God had to give God had to remind Israel about this seventh day whenever he gave them the tenth com, ten commandments he gave them the fourth commandment to remember the Sabbath day and then the New Testament whenever the New Testament believers gathered on the first day of the week and then ultimately we enter into that everlasting Sabbath rest to come in Christ this was meant to call us and this is what every every Sunday should be Sunday should not be a day of of busyness and tiredness and being worn out. It should be rest day, to rest in God, to devote ourselves to him, to find our rest, our rejoicing, our satisfaction, our comfort, our healing, everything in him. That's how we should approach the gathered worship of the saints, and that's what God here was inviting Adam and Eve to, is to know him to trust in him, to take his yoke upon them and inviting them into this presence. So we have a beginning story and that's, that's very important. The first, uh, through, through, uh, chapter two, verse three, the first, uh, chapter and then chapter two, verse three, we have the beginning of the story without an ending. Notice there's no ending day, uh, seeming to, to pull us and say, why is that? Is this rest still around and we know in Hebrews and, and Psalm 95 that, yes, yes, it is. It's still available uh, to us. Um, so let me see here. What do I got to read here? I got some stuff, and I realize this thing is going to take a while um, uh, to go through. So uh, notice the dominion that, that mankind is given uh, in creation and, and what happens. But... This is something now that I want to talk about real quick here, too, is a key word that you're going to read as we go through the book, the Genesis. And it's the word generations, the word generations, because as you read the, the, the book of Hebrews, you'll notice, or the book of Hebrews, the book of Genesis, you can tell that I'm trying to find the paper, the book of uh, Genesis, you'll notice that there's often going to be this refrain, these are the generations of, and that happens first here in chapter 2, verse 4. It says, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. Um, this word generations comes from the root idea of giving birth to or bringing forth. Um, and whenever here, whenever it uses the word generations of, it's having the idea of what comes into being as a result of, or what is produced, or what follows from. So whenever it says here, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth, what it's saying here is 
Now we've created the heavens and earth create were created. This is the, the these are the generations. This is what happened and came from, and what occurred on and resulted from the heavens and the earth. This is kind of what comes from the heavens and the earth. This is what happened on the heavens and the earth. Um, it follows from that. Now it's going. This refrain is going to happen the rest of the book of Genesis. So we have here uh, the the first part is really the beginning. Uh, and then after that, God is going to zoom in. Uh, no, Moses, uh, by, under the inspiration of the Spirit, is going to continue to zoom in. First of all, we have the generations of the heavens and the earth in chapter 2, verse 4. Then we have the beginning of the generations of Adam in chapter 5, verse 1. Then in chapter 6, verse 9, we have the generations of Noah. What happens after Noah, what happens as a result of Noah? Uh, this continues in chapter 10, verse 1. We have the generations of the sons of Noah. Chapter 11, verse 10, the generations of Shem. Before eventually in chapter 11, verse 27, we have the generations of Terah, which runs all the way through uh, chapter 25, verse 11, till we get in chapter 25, verse 12, to the generations of Ishmael, and then es- Isaac, and then Esau, and then the last Chapters 37 through 50 are the generations of Jacob, what comes from Jacob. This seems to be an intentional device, an intentional word used by the by Moses to help us to break up the book and to kind of get, it, it kind of is a mile marker. It's helpful for us as we think about how to break down and understand this book. So here we have right away the story, the genesis, the, the generations, the story of of this world in Genesis 2, 4 through 4, 29. So what God is doing here again is, and Moses is repeating to us and describing to us the way in which mankind was created. Uh, We were created um, by God out of the dust of the ground. He says that in chapter 2, verse 7. He says, this is what happened uh, in in this is the story of the world. God created us out of dust from the ground breathed into us the breath of life and we were we were created outside of eden but then god created planted a garden and then took us and put us in the garden of eden and he put us there the the man whom he had formed the man whom he had with his own hands so to speak crafted and made in his image and he put us there to work the ground um, and this is not a slave labor. This is more akin to, uh, as image bearers, to a, fa- a son working alongside his father, a son wanting to grow up to be like his father. Um, and so just as our God works, he calls us to work alongside him and like him, to learn from him, to, uh, as Paul will say later on in Ephesians, to be as beloved children imitators of God. That's what it is to be an image bearer, to be an imitator of God and to have this relationship with him and then to live out of that in imitation of him and communion with him. So he plants this garden, God does, and then he puts us in this beautiful garden. And it's a garden full of beauty and goodness. It's got food that's pleasant to the sight. And there's two specific special trees there, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, it's very important right away to note that these trees are are symbolic ordinances. They're kind of like baptism in the Lord's Supper for us today, 
which were signs to us. Um, I think this is important because it's not like the tree of life had some kind of really magical fruit that if you ate it, you would live forever. Or the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was filled with literal poison. They were symbolic trees placed there in the garden. And as we'll see, God forbids them to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What it seems God is doing there, he's got two trees, the tree of life, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what God is seeming to say is, you can enjoy my goodness, the tree of life, but you will respect my sovereignty over you, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You will not eat of that tree. You will listen to my commands. But I want you, but notice, knock yourself out with everything. Eat whatever you want here. The whole garden is yours. Just don't eat of that one tree. And it, it, it is hinted also that if man, in, as we see here in 16 and 17, where God had given him the commands, that he says, the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. You shall most certainly die. Dying, you shall die. That's the, the literal idea. You will most certainly die on the day you eat of it. The opposite seems to be indicated as well. That, and especially by that Sabbath rest earlier, right? God created us, first of all, to be immortal. And so by showing, because God has loved mankind and Adam so much that by responding in love to this command and loving God and trusting in his goodness and rejoicing in the provision that he's given, that we will then be able to enjoy life with the Lord forever in immortality, in rest with God forever. Then eventually we see uh, the la- this next section. So uh, we've got, uh, God says, it is not good that man should be alone. And so he creates a helper, an ally who fits and corresponds to him. So he uh, creates the woman and he, he causes her to, uh, he causes Adam to sleep and to, uh, he takes a, a rib from him, does this surgery, so to speak, and then creates and forms a woman and then brings her to the man. And the man says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now notice again, this is important. She's taken from the ribs. Uh, This was played upon, I believe, by Matthew Henry. She wasn't taken from his foot that he should rule over her. She wasn't taken from his head that she should rule over him. She was taken from his side so that she could be his companion and right at his side with him in, in this as co-image bearers um, in this garden. So we have the, the, the institution of marriage, the creation of woman, the fact that man and woman equally bear the image of God. Um, they're both made from the same stuff. It's fascinating, right? He doesn't go to the dust again and create woman just as he created the man um, because they would have then almost, uh, uh, there, there's, there, there, the unity of the human race would have not been the same, would it? He, he takes from the man the same clump of man, of Adam. He takes a clump of him, so to speak, from him and creates the woman so that even at a very material level, They're the same stuff. She is in a real material sense, him only in a corresponding way. And this draws together again, the the unity of the human race that we are all taken from one man um, and from one 
clump of clay, so to speak, uh, the first man. And all of us can trace our origins uh, uh, back to him. So here we have the origin of marriage and the, the, sta- the state of everything. There's no shame. Everything's full of beauty, goodness, and truth. That's the story of how the world begins in life in the garden. But however, as we see in chapter three, life in the garden gets very complicated because there's this serpent that shows up and he tempts the woman and says, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Right away, he begins to attack, notice God's word. Did God actually say that? And he attacks the the word of God uh, by insinuating that possibly God didn't and also creating um starting to create the hinting of beliefs that that perhaps God's keeping something from you perhaps uh you know why why won't he let you eat of that tree in the garden right and remember God said God's told them knock yourselves out everything is yours I've created this all for you and love and here they are right away, and, and the serpent comes and, and begins to ask questions. And she tells him, we may eat of the tree, fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Uh, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Now, this directly contradicts what God had earlier told them. He said, the day you eat of that tree, you will most certainly die. And the serpent says, no way. You, you will not most surely die. No way. And here's why. Because God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. See, God knows this. He, he knows that whenever you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. Well, that is true. Their eyes will be opened, as we see. The serpent has a dark irony to what he says. We're going to see their eyes are opened when they eat of this tree. But it's not that they become like God. You see, they they thought, he, he, it's amazing. And this is the way sin works, right? Somehow, someway, the devil starts us, first of all, to become ungrateful for the blessings God's given to us and to start to think that maybe God is withholding from us. That's what he does to the woman here. If really, if God, if you were his image bearers, right, you're supposed to be like sons and daughters, then why, why in the world would he withhold this, this from you? Isn't that tree desired to be good? How, how, why would a good God ever withhold that from you? Don't you see how good it is? Look at it. (laughs) The only reason why God would withhold that from you that you think is good with your eyes is because he's withholding something from you. He knows that you're going to become like him. Isn't it ironic they thought that by disobeying God, they could become like God. Um, But actually, it's in their disobedience that they least imitate God, and instead, they're imitating the serpent. But sin makes us so foolish that we begin to believe the lie every single time. Notice also, um, he says, um, he starts to call the woman, uh, uh, he, he, he starts to doubt God's goodness, right? He explicitly contradicts God's word. And now the woman is no longer trusting God's word. You see, the way in which to fight Satan is not with your eyes, and it's not with what you 
It's, it's not with um, uh, judging things by your eyes or by your human understanding. It is to go back and say, thus says the Lord. And that's not what she does, does it? She doesn't say, no, no, the Lord told me I could have everything I wanted here. He created me in his image. He loves us. He communes with us. He walks with us every day. He's given us his Sabbath rest. He calls us to everlasting life with him. No, she says, she starts to look at it with her eyes and start to doubt God's word. She starts to doubt what God told her. The woman, Saul, the tree was good for food. Notice right away with her eyes. She looks and she says, oh my, that looks really good for food. And that it was a delight to the eyes. It's pleasant. It's pleasant. Notice she starts to use her eyes, not her ears, not what God's told her. She's using her own understanding, her own uh, perceptions to judge the world and to judge what it looks good. God told her, don't eat that fruit. You're going to die. She looks at that fruit and says, that looks really good. I think I'm going to take it. That's what sin does. That's how dumb and foolish sin is. And that the tree was desired to make one wise. Oh, look, it's going to help me. It's going to give me insight, experience, insight that I've never had before. Now, does that sound like sin or not? That sounds like temptation, doesn't it? Right there temptation of all sorts has is it's fascinating we believe how often we still fall for this but we still think that sin offers a chance to experience some delight or insight that cannot be had but without sin And we think that's the avenue. That's the way to wisdom. That's the way to insight. That's the way to experience the fullness of whatever it is. When in fact, God's offered them full life already. You see what sin does now is we have rejected, Eve has started to reject the creator and instead to worship the creation. She's refused the word of the immortal God. And she's embraced the lies of this mortal serpent, the devil himself, the evil dragon. She thinks she's becoming wise, but in fact, she's become a fool. She takes the fruit and she eats. She gave some to her husband who was with her and he eats. They disobey God's word by eating. Now notice it's fascinating again, the connection of sin with eating. Um, we, we, we don't think oftentimes about the importance of, of, again, the, uh, we, we live in a material world and, and the sin happens by putting something in your mouth and crunching down on it and eating it and digesting it. There's something, uh, notice again, the connection between the spiritual and the material By eating this material thing, there's also a spiritual reality happening as well of sin in their lives, of rebellion. uh, Because remember, God had given them the whole garden to feast upon and to, in a sense, God spread the whole table for them already, hadn't he? He had spread a table for them, invited them to the table, to sit at table with him to fellowship with him as friends, as image bearers, as those who are like sons and daughters. 
And they say, nope, we don't want to sit at your table. We want to go over and sit at the serpent's table now. We want to go over there and sit with him and break bread with the snake. And so they eat of the fruit that God had given, uh, God had caused to grow, and uh, but they, they eat of this. But notice what happens right after this in verse 7. The, 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 she gave some to her husband, right, who was with her also, and he ate. The eyes of both were opened at this exact moment. The, 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 in a sense, the, the snake was, well, you can imagine the evil malice in his heart as he says, your eyes are going to be opened. Well, yes, they will be but not in the way they thought they were going to be opened. And that's, again, the way sin works. We think this is going to be some great eye-opening experience. Sin offers us a doorway, a portal to, to, to higher levels of whatever. And yet, look, their eyes are opened, but they're full of shame. They're full of guilt. They're full of embarrassment. They're full of fear. They're full of hopelessness. They're full of despair. They're full of pride now. They're full of taking care of themselves now. Notice what they do. They, they, were, they were opened. They knew they were naked. They, made, they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Notice God had already made a garden for them. God had created them. God had given for them all of these things. And here they are now because they have rebelled against his word and sought to have their eyes opened in their own way they now think we've got to take care of ourselves now. They try automatically to cover their embarrassment, to conceal their shame, the, the results, their, their guilt, and also the shame and the misery that comes from this, this fear, this terror that overwhelms their bodies and their minds and their souls that now we'll see eventually the great unity that had once existed where even Eve was literally taken from the same clump of Adam. She was taken from the side of Adam. That union, that, that unity, that beautiful harmony is now disrupted and divided. Everything is disordered. The creation is in chaos. And here they are using even the creation now, the fig leaves. They're using the creation for purposes that it had never originally been designed for. They're using the creation now to cover their own shame because they have, they're, they're trying. And here's the, here's the thing, right? This, this reminds us of what sin is. Sin at its basic level is always Genesis 3 verses 1 through 7. Every single one of your sins uh, that you experience temptation in this life is always like this. This is the basic template for what sin does and what temptation looks like and our results that we experience uh, because of it. The shame, the guilt, the embarrassment the feeling of alienation, of being alone, of desperation. And so now, what happens in verse 8, the terror? They hear the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Uh, here they are, and all of a sudden, who comes in? But they hear the sound of the Lord God walking. It's fascinating. They don't see the Lord. 
They don't see his footprints even, but they hear him. They're like, it's like a, uh, the sound of a rustling leaf can scare uh, somebody with a really bad conscience. I was just watching a movie last night where somebody who had uh, stolen money, right, and uh, or had some some cash and somebody else wanted it, and uh, he was trying to sleep in a hotel, and eventually he's like, it's useless, can't sleep, because people are after him. Similarly here, simply the sound, the sound of the good Lord God of heaven and earth walking in the garden, it's in the cool of the day, there's no thunder, no lightning, just the good, holy God walking in the garden. The sound is terrifying to them. And the sound of that fills them with dread. And we see what happens. They run away. They hide themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The garden which had been before where God had put them there to experience the communion and to sit at God's table with him, a fellowship and friendship, to enjoy all of his blessings, uh, to, to taste and see the Lord is good. Now that same garden is the place of terror and hiding and separation. They realize they are not at peace anymore with God. But the Lord God calls to them right away. You see, the Lord knows exactly what's going on here. He knew this would happen, and he's already come. And he calls out, where are you? Now, that call right away is singular, right? Where are you, Adam? Where are you, man? Because Adam was uniquely the head representative of the whole human race. He's our first father. And so in a human biological perspective, right? He is our father. And if he had succeeded, we all would have entered into eternal life. But he disobeyed. And so God comes directly to him and says, where are you, Adam? You're the leader. You're the head of all this humanity. In fact, then of all creation, where are you, Adam? Come to me. And uh, again, notice the God who comes to us, who calls to us. And he says, Adam says, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And notice how, you know, Adam now, sin has made Adam so foolish. I heard your sound in the garden, and, uh, and God's going to say, that was never a problem before, Adam. You've heard the sound of me walking in the garden before. And right here he is. He's, he's got Adam and Eve sitting right before him. And Adam comes out of the hiding. And, and they're like foolish children who've just sinned. And, and here is God. And he, he, he knows exactly what they've done. And here we are. We, you have to almost laugh at how foolish and ridiculous sin makes us. Look how dumb we look as sinners. Uh, God, God's presence was never an issue before. What's, what's wrong? What's wrong, Adam? Who told you? Have you eaten of the tree? Uh, have you eaten of that tree, Adam? Notice the question. Did you eat of that tree? And we see the results of sin. Uh, that, the woman you gave me, she gave me the fruit and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? She said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So here's God's image bearers. They've, hated God. 
They've sped in his face. They've rejected his table. They've rejected fellowship with him. They have made themselves unclean and dirty and filthy with their sin. Their hearts are now hardened against him and in rebellion against him. And whenever he calls them forth, they're not repentant. They're not coming back to God of their own will. They're not uh, saying, Lord, we sinned, forgive us. They don't do any of that. Adam says, uh, yeah, I was scared because you came uh, near. And then, by the way, it's her fault. And then Eve says, he, it was his fault. He deceived me, which is true. He did deceive her and she ate. And the Lord God at this moment, if he had chosen to, he could have wiped us all off the face of the earth and said, you know what? You ungrateful image bearers. You did, I gave you all of this and you did nothing to show me love and response. All I asked you was to show that you love me and you can listen to me by not eating of that tree. And here you've, you've now you come and, and you're, you're scared of my presence. Really? I'm the problem in a sense, God, right? Because remember Adam says, you gave us the woman, you gave me the woman and God doesn't do that, does he? This is the most amazing thing of God's grace when God walks in the garden to terror sinners, to you and me. And what does he do? He speaks to the serpent, he curses him, and then he gives a promise in verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, as Adam and Eve sit there and listen to this, this amazing promise, they're told the serpent will be defeated. And there is hope. I'm going to put enmity, hostility. In, you're going to be enemies. The woman and the snake and her offspring and your offspring. Now notice, by the way, it's fascinating. He calls her, he, call, he says her offspring. He doesn't say Adam's offspring. There is no hope through Adam anymore. And this automatically hints that the offspring is going to be miraculously conceived because later on in Genesis, whenever you talk about offspring, it's with men, right? Isaac is the offspring of Abraham. Jacob is the Jacob and Esau are the offspring of Isaac and so on. Not of women. And here God is going to do something amazing. A new thing he is going to do in the womb of woman and from woman he is going to create he's going to bring forth an offspring a single capital o offspring a capital s seed who is going to come and crush the head of the serpent though the serpent will bruise the heel so even here is is highlighted the complete victory and conquest of this seed somehow some way he's going to defeat the serpent he's going to slay the great dragon satan but his heel will be bruised in the process he will suffer he will be a suffering conqueror who will defeat the snake and all of the evil all of the turmoil all of the the stuff sin and its misery and all the results of that this this offspring is going to bring about and do he will be tempted by this same serpent in the wilderness. Only 
He will not succumb to temptation. He will live and trust in the word of God for them. Salvation here is promised. And so what we eventually will see is though there's curses come and though all of the pain and suffering happens, uh, the promise of Genesis 3.15 is the foundation gospel promise of the whole Bible. In fact, the whole gospel is found in Genesis 3.15 and everything flows out of and is a bigger fulfillment of that. But you have everything right here, right here. Um, and, And similarly, you have two groups of people, those who are in the offspring of the woman and those who are in the offspring of the serpent, the church and the world, the church and and unbelievers. We see the curse that is given to mankind and to woman. Um, And right after that, we see the man calls his wife's name Eve because she's the mother of all living. I think this is an indication that he looks at Eve and sees that eternal life. And notice this only, he only calls her Eve after the Genesis 3.15 promise. And what an amazing thing it is that we're not going to immediately die. We will die. Life is cursed in this world, but there is hope in another offspring to come. There is hope that someone can come and turn back the curse. Um, This, uh, I I think here about uh, George Herbert, he said uh, this, he had this, this, he has this poem Uh, called the sacrifice. And he says, then they condemn me all with that same breath, talking about Jesus. They condemn Jesus. They condemn me all with that same breath, which I do give them daily unto death. Thus Adam, my first breathing rendereth, was ever grief, grief like mine. So since the earth's great curse in Adam's fall upon my head, so I remove it all from the earth unto my brows and bear the thrall was ever grief like mine. O all ye who pass by, behold and see, man stole the fruit, but I must climb the tree, the tree of life to all, but only me was ever grief like mine. Man stole the fruit from the tree, but Jesus Christ is going to climb the tree, and his tree that he is crucified on becomes the tree of life for Adam and Eve and for all of us who place our hope in him and the second Adam. So here we go. We've got Cain and Abel. We got the the results of sin here in chapter four. We see the killing of Cain or the killing of Abel by Cain. Uh, we see uh, the curse of Cain. Right, he is sent to be a wanderer on the face of the earth. He goes and builds a city, um, and we see music and other things that come from him. But eventually, the Lord appoints another offspring, Seth, and then eventually from Seth comes Enosh. And at that time, we're told people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So here we've got the story of the, of the creation, the fall, but also the promise of restoration. And here we are as God's people, hoping in the God who will send the promised offspring who can crush the head of the serpent. And so the rest of the Bible is all about where is that offspring coming? Where is that offspring coming from? Well, then we begin in chapter five with the book of the generations of Adam, So this is what comes now from Adam, and I've titled this thing here, this section here, Men of Dust Looking for the Man from Heaven. Uh, We're told that uh, Adam was the man of dust, right? And then uh, that's what we're told in Genesis chapter 2. And then he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. So all of these people, 
are now in the line of Adam. This is also the godly line of believers. This is the church of the Old Testament uh, before the flood. This is the line in which it, it, it was centered around uh, the people of God. So notice about what these men of dust, they bear the image and likeness of the first Adam. And notice all of them, though they live, they die. Um, they do look forward to the resurrection, though, which we see hinted at in the life of Enoch. Enoch is a man in verse 22 of chapter 5 who, we're told, walked with God, but was taken, and he was not. Again, this, this highlights to them and would have highlighted, Moses puts this here, to highlight that even before the flood, the fathers, they looked to the future life. Uh, to a resurrection from the dead, to a hope beyond this world, this cursed world, that somehow, some way, God is going to restore this back. And here we see the longing of these early believers. In verse 29, uh, Lamech looks at his son Noah and says, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. He looks at Noah and he's thinking, maybe this is the offspring. Maybe this is the one. Um, and notice the, the fathers were looking for rest, relief. They were looking to another world, to another place where righteousness dwells. So, men of dust, ultimately, though, looking for the man from heaven, as we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, they were looking forward to the promised one who would come to turn the men of dust into the image of of the man from heaven. But then we see in chapter six, uh, what happens uh, with the, the world. Um, I'm calling this section here. We have a men of dust looking for the man from heaven. And then uh, chapter six through basically chapter nine there, you've got, I call this the baptism of the earth, baptism of the earth, because the earth is filled with violence. The earth is filled with sin. We're told the sons of God, who uh, I take as the, uh, the church believers, the godly, they began to intermingle with the world, with the daughters of man. And this is exactly what we are told. Uh, remember, we're told to marry only in the Lord in the New Testament. The same was true in the Old Testament. What we have here is believers uh, apostatizing, uh, turning away from the true faith and marrying the daughters of men and being led astray into idolatry and sin. Um, and, and so God here sees this, the, the sin is, is overtaken the world and, uh, God gives them 120 years, 120 years. Now, uh, we see what we see, look right here, look and see the, the wickedness of man was great on the earth. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Notice, every intention, every single intention of the thoughts of mankind's heart was only evil, and it was only that continually, ongoing, all the time. So, this is the wickedness, the evil, the violence that God has seen on the earth. And so, what does God have to do? Well, God decides to wash the earth clean from the filth of this sin. But notice what he does. He is patient. He gives them 120 years to repent and to turn to him 
and to trust in him again in his grace and the promised offspring. 120 years, when the earth is full of wickedness and violence, the Lord is patient. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. He is not willing that any should perish, that but all should come to repentance. And he gives them 120 years of hearing the preaching of Noah, 120 years of seeing the ark being built, 120 years of Noah preaching righteousness and saying, trust in God, turn to him, he will forgive you. God has promised salvation for us. Turn away from the judgment to come, come into God. He's, he's a good creator and he will forgive us of our sins. He will get, forgive you of your wickedness. They don't do it, do they? But it says in verse eight, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So we have the wickedness of mankind, the patience of God, but the grace of God. And this is so important. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, but this favor is not given to Noah because Noah is a good guy. Favor is favor, not because of who we are, but despite who we are. Noah was a sinner like us. He could never hope to buy God's favor. Right? We heard it said from Alec Mater in last uh, Sunday school class last year. It says here, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, but the meaning is favor found Noah. Favor came to Noah and found him where he was at. And so God comes and, and finds Noah, and then we have the generations of Noah. And God looks at the earth, and notice what he says it, um, in verse uh, 12. God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, which kind of reminds me of previously in the creation story, right? God saw the earth, and it was very good, but now God looks at the earth and says, it's corrupt. It's full of wickedness and violence, and he's determined to make an end of it and to destroy it. And how is he determined to destroy it with water? Remember, creation uh, began with the Spirit of God hovering over water. But now what God is going to do is, in a sense, decreate the world with water. Again, we go back to 2 Peter chapter 3. He says this same thing. He says the, that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. So God formed the earth out of water and through water by the word of God. And then with that same water, he destroyed the world. So what we have here is God created the world. But now he's going to, in a sense, decreate the world and wash it clean, scrub it clean with water. Water is a picture, isn't it, of purification, but also a picture of judgment, of uh, decreation here, of God's wrath, but also of the scrubbing clean of the earth, of cleansing. It has both of those pictures of judgment and cleansing, uh, but also of washing and being made pure. And God is going to scrub the earth clean. And uh, he's going to baptize the earth with water. How can Adam... Now notice, Noah, God doesn't say, Noah, I'm going to pull you up to heaven for a while so you don't have to go through the baptism of the earth. Doesn't say that, does he? Noah has to go through the baptism of the earth. And his family does, just like everybody else, except with this difference. They have an ark to go into. He tells them to build this ark, and I'm going to, he says, flood the waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, but I'm going to establish my covenant with you. And the ark is now this, this picture of salvation 
Noah will experience the flood. He will see the deluge and the total decreation of the world, so to speak. He will see the cleansing and the scrubbing clean of the wickedness of this world. He will see and go through even the judgment of God, but he will come out on the other side because he's hidden in the ark. He's hidden in this safe place that goes through the judgment. So God uh, brings Noah and his family and the, the animals on the, earth, on the ark, and then the flood comes forth, the fountains of the great deep burst forth. Um, Noah with his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, his wife, their three wives, they all go into the ark, and uh, the Lord shuts them in. And so notice this baptism, by the way, has on the one hand an idea of of cleansing. God is going to wipe away the wickedness of this world. It also has an idea of judgment and death. It also then has the idea that notice, notice who does the baptizing here. God. God's the one who does the baptizing here. Now, unless you think I'm kind of crazy in connecting baptism to uh, Noah and the flood, notice that Peter does this exact same thing. He says that um, in verse 20 of chapter 3 of 1 Peter, he says, Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. So how can we be brought safely through water? We are on the ark. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. So Peter connects baptism to Noah's flood. Did you know that? This is the baptism of the earth, and this is the baptism. God uh, sends the same creative waters that created the earth in a sense are now the same thing that decreates the earth through judgment and that's what's happening Uh, he blots out all life and this is important baptism is something that god does here god's the one who floods the earth and he's also the one who kills remember our baptism is a baptism into christ and a baptism into his death the old us is is killed and destroyed, and we are co-crucified with Christ. But also, there's safety through it because we're in Christ. When our baptism, we not only are put under the water, we are brought back up from the water to new life. And that's exactly what happens with Noah in his baptism. Look what happens. God remembers Noah in chapter 8, verse 1, and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him on the ark, and God made a wind blow over the earth. A wind blows over the earth, huh? Kind of reminds us of the wind, uh, the Spirit of God, who's like the wind, uh, who blows where it wishes. So just as the Spirit was active in chapter 1, verse 2, hovering over the face of the waters, Here, even after this great act of judgment and cleansing and death, is a new creation taking place. God, once again, makes a wind blow over the earth and over these waters, and the waters subside. 
the foundations of the deep, everything's closed, the rains are constrained. And eventually what we see is that through this baptism, Noah is saved and brought safely through the judgment. And that is what our baptism is a picture of. It's a picture of all of these things, of safety through judgment, of purification, of cleansing. But also, Adam and Eve, when they step out of the ark onto dry land, it's almost like it's a new creation. It's a whole, forgive the, you know, that, that song, but it's a whole new world. Uh, and, and so the old, there was a, there was the world before the flood and now there's the world after the flood and Adam, Noah and his wife, um, and they're kind of like a new Adam and Eve, aren't they? And so Noah is in this, again, a picture of Christ, a second Adam to come and, and he comes here on the earth and, um, they go forth and there's all this new creation. And so baptism, the baptism of the earth that we see pictured here is, is a foretaste of what our baptism pictures to us in the New Testament and ultimately upon what God is going to do at the last day as well. This, in a sense, was, was the day of the Lord and uh, a, a, a precursor day of the Lord of judgment. But afterwards, notice there's a new heavens, so to speak, and a new earth that Noah dwells on and comes out on and, uh, and they participate in. Uh, so let's see here. What else do I got? I got this thing here, the gospel according to, uh, uh, Noah. I've got some great articles, but I'm taking way too long with this podcast. Um, and so in Christ, in the ark of Christ, we too are brought safely through water, through his death and resurrection. And we see the covenant that God makes with Noah in chapter 9. He makes this wonderful covenant promise. Um, he kind of reiterates the same things, right? The new co- the commission that had been given to Adam and Eve in chapter 1, uh, where God gave them all of these things, gave them dominion. Same thing is reiterated here in uh, chapter the last part of chapter 8 and then chapter 9. God blesses them just as he had blessed Adam and Eve. He tells them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth just as he had told Adam and Eve. So they're, they're like a new Adam and a new Eve here, a new humanity. Um, uh, God, this shows us the basic pattern of salvation, doesn't it? Through judgment, God brings us safely through so that we are brought safely to the other side um, to be with God. And God makes this, this covenant to never flood the earth with water again. And then he puts the rainbow in the cloud to remind them and us of his great promise that he will never flood the earth again. Well, we see Noah's descendants and what happened. Uh, in verse 18, the sons of Noah went forth from the ark um, and what happens in the set, this is the reality is even though God has wiped away the wickedness and judged this first world, so to speak, and even though Noah is a righteous man, uh, he's a believer, um, he's trusting in God's grace, we see what happens in the latter part of chapter 9. Um, he gets drunk, um, his uh, son Ham uh, comes and, and sees him and uh, uh, and so what we see here is, is sin still taking place, right? And notice again, it happens through food. Uh, just as the Adam and Eve had sinned through eating, 
so here Adam Noah and and then there's the involvement of food again uh, in eating or drinking uh, the fruit of the vine um, there is sin that happens the connection again between food and salvation and and we've just seen water um, but God here uh, curses Cain and blesses Shem the Lord blessed be the Lord the God of Shem and let Canaan be his servant so the curse remains and so we're still looking for that offspring. Noah is not the one who's going to bring us that rest. So then in chapter 10, we go through the generations of the sons of Noah. These are the nations that come about, uh, Japheth, Ham, and uh, Shem. Shem, of course, is the promised line, the one from whom uh, we will eventually see Abraham uh, come from. But then we see in Genesis chapter 11, this city being built. This, and I'm calling this the city of man. Uh, the whole earth is now together after the flood. And just to see again what happens, uh, people get together and they say in verse 3, Come, let us break bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now notice what's fascinating here is they're wanting to build a city for self-aggrandizing purposes. Mankind is always ambitious, always wanting to praise and build up ourselves. They're not doing this to serve their neighbor. They're not wanting to build this city uh, to serve uh, the, the needy or whatever. They're saying, let's build for ourselves and make for ourselves and self-aggrandize for our own glory, our own fame, for our own purposes, for our own desires. Let's build this city. This is what men do. It's fascinating that Cain earlier, um, there's cities associated with him and his descendants. There's a city here that's built. We hear about, um, uh, was it Nimrod, uh, who's a mighty man, a mighty hunter. Then he has a kingdom. We read about Egypt, which comes from Ham. But we don't read that the uh, descendants, uh, the godly in Genesis, build cities, do they? They don't have a city here. They're not looking for cities in this world. They're not trying to build their hopes in this world. They believe in the Sabbath rest to come. They believe in immoral life. They believe in Enoch's resurrection. They're waiting uh, for the seed of the woman to come. They're, they're hearing the voice of Abel speak beyond even his death. And they're saying there's something more. They're looking, as we see in Hebrews 11, to a city that has foundations, whose maker and builder is God. So, whereas mankind is here always trying, men in their sin are trying to make a name for themselves here, trying to console themselves, and this is still an attempt at self-justification, an attempt to save themselves, an attempt to build up their own city rather than go to the city of the Lord. The Lord comes down here and sees this and the tower they've built. And, and, and it's funny, they say, we don't want to be dispersed. The Lord easily disperses them. Mankind is like the beasts of the earth that perish. They're nothing compared to the power of the Lord and his judgment. And he disperses them over the face of the earth. I want to read this article from Chad Bird. It's called Building Towers of Babel to the Glory of God. Uh, this is, uh, he, he calls this, 
Here's what lurks beneath this seemingly righteous behavior. They wanted to make a name for themselves, these tower builders. The builders of the Tower of Babel wouldn't be caught dead begging for loose change at a busy intersection. They were white-collar architects and blue-collar masons, proud, labor-loving men with high aspirations. They weren't good-for-nothings looking for a handout. They dreamed big, worked hard, poured their sweat and blood into the first high-rise the world would ever see. These men were the patron saints of overachievers. So when God puts on a hard hat and visits their work site, what he does makes no sense. He's concerned that because they are so unified, this tower is only the beginning of what they will do. In fact, he says, nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. So what? How is a united humanity not a good thing? It's not as if they're baking bricks to build the world's largest whorehouse. This edifice embodies high ideals. It'll keep them one people, and it'll prevent them from being scattered over the face of the earth. What's so wrong with that? Here's what lurks beneath this seemingly righteous behavior. They wanted to make a name for themselves, these tower builders. Up to this point in Genesis, every name is given by another. God names Adam. Adam names the animals and Eve. Eve names Cain. Cain names the city he built after his son, and so forth. Each name is a gift. It is not earned nor deserved. It is not something you make for yourself. It comes from outside you, is placed upon you, is not achieved but received. The Tower of Babel, perhaps more than any other Old Testament story, unveils the burning desire in our hearts. We want to usurp that which God is graciously willing to give. We long to attain as an accomplishment that which the Father wants to bestow as a gift. We sweat and bleed in our efforts to build a tower while God stands before us with a free cross in his outstretched hands. So it has always been. The devil tempts Eve to eat the fruit so she will be like God, but the divine similitude she seeks to achieve by consumption has already been bestowed upon her at creation. God in love has already made her like he is. But no, that simply will not suffice. She'll build her own tower, thank you. And when she does, what Eve has striven to attain by works only makes her lose that which God had already given her by grace. We're cut from the same cloth. God gives us the name Christian and beloved, but hardly have we left the baptismal font before we roll up our sleeves and get busy making sure everyone knows we've earned those names. Every good deed becomes a brick in our rising tower of self-righteousness. We're not beggars. In fact, we'll honor God by proving to him we're worthy of his love. What we won't do, however, is accept a handout of grace. Our pride won't allow it. It is not our unrighteous monuments of sin that we need fear the most but our towers of righteousness. We'll even etch Solideo Gloria into the bricks. We'll claim we're doing it all for the glory of God. But inside these towers of piety roar parties of self-importance. We're making a name for ourselves. So God puts on a hard hat, grabs the sledgehammer of the law, and proceeds to tear down what we've so carefully constructed. It angers us, it frustrates us, because when he's done raising our towers, all we're left with is what he is willing to give. We turn from our impressive towers to see an unimpressive cross in which he has done all the work, sweated out drops of blood to construct for us a gift that cannot be earned, but only received. Our Father will not allow us to make a name for ourselves. Names are his to give, and give them he does in grace and mercy. He names us his beloved children. He etches the name Christian into the bricks of our soul. The cross 
is the only tower we need. In it, we are united with Christ and his spirit. We live rent-free, mortgage-free, for our habitation has been paid for in crimson currency. The gospel will brook no rivals for the God of the gospel is love incarnate. Divine love does not look for hard workers, but for beggars with dirty, empty hands. And in those palms, the Father places the riches of Christ Jesus, the key to the mansion of grace. You think about it, that's exactly what God has done in the Gospels uh, in here in Genesis so far, right? He places grace in the dirty hands of Adam and Eve. Uh, from you is going to come this offspring. He places that key into the, the hands of, Ab- of Abel and then into the hands of Seth. While Cain is out there building cities in this world and while Cain is out there and his descendants are, are doing cultural projects like music and, and um, maybe agriculture, what we read about the church in chapter 5 is that they live, they die. Someone is taken beyond to the next world, and they hope for rest. But yet, their empty, dirty, beggar hands of Adam, of Enoch, of Lamech and Noah, God places the key to the mansion in their hands. And he places the key in the hands of Noah, who did not deserve it any more than anybody else, but he places it right there and gives it to them. The difference between Noah and all of those before him and the, the world around him was that he was willing to receive, he received God's grace. They were still trying to, to buy it or to do it however they wanted to. And here, afterwards now in the Tower of Babel, we see one of the preeminent examples of human pride, and humankind's desire to save themselves, to cover their sins. This is notice mankind has moved from using fig leaves to now, and 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 then later on, mankind uses uh, uh, murder to 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 you know they murder in order to cover over their lack of worship, or they uh, all these things. Now we're trying to use towers, huge towers in order to cover over the shame and the sin and the guilt that we can never get rid of. And you think about that in your life. What are the things in your life that you're trying to use to cover over the sin and the shame and the guilt in your life? What even your good works, even your uh, the good things in your life that you think are good things, that, like, like Chad Bird says, you'll etch to God alone be the glory into the bricks of them but you're using that to actually try to cover up your sin and shame. The gospel is not a plan for you to reform your life. It is the story of the cross and how grace is given to dirty-faced rebels who come and receive everything from a great God who just gives it to them for free beggars that's who we are and so the tower of babel is the is a is a great example to us of what mankind try to do to make a name for themselves because now is where the story everything's really been leading up to this now 
in chapter 11, because we have uh, the generations of Shem were led through Shem. And eventually we get to this guy named Terah, who fathers a guy named Abram. And we're told about Abram. Uh, the, these are the generations of Terah now in chapter tw- in verse 27 of chapter 11. He fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And then Abram took a wife, uh, and the name of Abram's wife was Sarai. And in verse 30, now Sarai was barren. She had no child. The idea of barrenness is interesting. The same, I don't know if it's the same word, but it's the same root can be used for hamstringing a horse, right? So why do you hamstring a horse? So it can't run. Sarai is hamstrung. There is no way. She, she cannot have children. She is infertile. And in this culture at this time, uh, we, we, today it, you can imagine, and we know, right, it, it hurts. And uh, the pain involved today even whenever um, a woman who would like to conceive a child is unable to do so, we know the, the hurt that can be there. Well, it, it, the, the social uh, stigma may have even been greater in the ancient world because as a woman, you, you, there was some, it was this, this whole role of giving birth to children was, was a very highly extolled so much later that even, I think it's Rachel will tell Jacob, uh, give me children or I die. In other words, I, I, the children are very important. And if I don't have kids, I don't know why I'm here in a sense, you know? And so here's Sarai to the outside world. Uh, she, she's barren, um, dead, as good as dead, right? What good is she? She's a wife who can't have kids. And here's an old man, Abram. They're here worshiping. Uh, we're told they're from Ur of the Chaldeans. Uh, we, we read about that. And uh, they're there worshiping the moon god. They're idolaters. They're pagans. They're not worshipers of the Lord God. They've forgotten all about him. They're in a city with a a great temple. They're in a place of civilization where mankind is attempting to uh, buy the love of God. And you can imagine Abram and Sarai, even their names I've read, or at least some of them are um, related to the moon God. And the moon God was thought to, you know, he, they, they worshiped him. Uh, They hoped in him. And Abram would have lived his life trying to buy the love of the moon god. And here's his wife, unable. The moon god can't give them children, uh, cannot bless them with life. They're still as good as dead. And here it is at this moment. This is the way the Lord works. While mankind is there doing all in their effort to build a city and a name for themselves, God looks and finds a woman, an old woman who's barren, and her man, and her husband, Abram, and they're idolaters, pagans. They don't worship the Lord. They don't want anything. Honestly, they're not even looking for the Lord. And yet he comes to them and says, go out from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you. And notice this, look at this. And make your name great. The name that the people of the Tower of Babel were looking to make for themselves, God freely gives. 
See, the difference is if you in your life and me in my life are going out trying to make a name for ourselves, we'll never get it because we're sinners. But God here says, Abram, I'm going to give you a name and I'm going to make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Paul tells us this was the gospel preached to Abraham. And what we see here is whenever God sees a barren woman with an old husband, he says, that's where I want to start my work, right there. I don't want to start with the Tower of Babel. I don't want to start with the rich, the famous, the able, the strong, the mighty, the powerful. I'll take a barren woman and from her, I'm going to bring about the savior of the world so that all the earth will know that I am Lord, I am the Lord and I will show my love by showing the extent of my power and my ability and my willingness and my patience and my kindness and my grace to choose this sinner, Abram, and from him and his wife as good as dead, I'm going to save the world. That's the way our Lord works. He does exceeding above all we could ever ask or think. And Abram goes, he's promised, look at this, he's promised land. He's promised that not only is he going to have descendants, not only is he going to have one son, he's going to have a whole nation, a great nation that's going to come from him. His name is going to become great. He's going to bless him. And he's going to, everyone that blesses Abram will be blessed. Those who dishonor him will be cursed. But Abraham is going, Abram, at this time, will soon to be Abraham, is going to be the means and the channel of blessing. God is going to deposit the goodness, the grace and the riches of Jesus Christ in the family of Abram so that at the right time, Christ, whenever he comes, will bring that salvation and light to the world. He goes into the land of Canaan. Abram does. He worships the Lord. God tells him, to your offspring, I will give this land. He builds an altar. He worships the Lord. Notice he has a tent. He doesn't go and build a city or build a tower. The only land Abram will own in this promised land of Canaan is the burial plot that he has for his wife and him. And then we see a foretaste here at the last part of chapter 12 of uh, Abram. Notice, Abram's not a righteous or a virtuous man in the sense in which he's, Abram is not saved because he's a good guy. We see his sin is even here. He goes down to Egypt. He's scared. He lies about his wife. Um, And, but what happens? What does the Lord do? Um, The Lord uh, afflicts Pharaoh in his house with great plagues right? This is already a foretaste of what's going to happen uh, hundreds of years later under Moses' time when God will redeem and rescue out of the house of Pharaoh his people. Uh, Because in a sense, within the womb of Sarai right now, think about that. Within the womb of barren Sarai, you wouldn't know it yet, but from that woman, ultimately is going to be the line is going to be the Christ and the Christ is 
there's a there's the uh, there's almost um, of course in God's plan and purpose it was never going to happen. But from a, from a human perspective, uh, that that womb is in danger, and the woman is in danger, and salvation seems to be in danger because the woman has been brought captured into the house of Pharaoh. And what does God do through great plagues? He redeems Sarai, rescues her from that, sends her, send, and brings her back to her husband, Abram. And they're blessed. And Pharaoh sends them out, says, go back to, the, go back to your land. And they go to the, to the promised land. So again, we already see a foreshadowing of what's to come in Exodus, even here in the last part of chapter 12. So that's a very long podcast and a very big overview of Genesis 1 through 12. The good news is, is the other chapters are not going to be, um, we're not going to cover so many chapters at one time in, in, uh, in a reading week and in the podcast, but Genesis is so important, so important. And uh, especially these first chapters that I, I wanted to spend some time and I enjoy it a lot of uh, these first chapters. Um, and so it's so important to lay the foundation. Notice where we've come from. We've come all the way from creation to the fall, uh, the promise of salvation, the flood, the baptism of the earth. And, uh, and mankind continue. We see mankind's sin, all of these, these features, the rest the whole, this is really in a sense, a mini Bible in the rest for the rest of the Bible, all the themes, all the truths that are found in the rest of scripture are found here that we've just read today, right? Now they're more fully elaborated and more detailed, but they're all here. And so uh, we've now come to Abram, which is really, really where um, uh, in a sense that he's been wanting, uh, Moses has been wanting to bring us is all right. Now, now this is, this is where, uh, uh, I really want to get to, he says, is because all of this was leading us to what God is going to do with Abram and his barren wife, Sarai. And so that's where we're going to be uh, as we go next week. Um, thank you for listening to this. Uh, if you have any questions, uh, please contact me, email me, let me know. Uh, I'd love to help out and to uh, be of any service uh, that I can. So uh, thank you for listening to this. Uh, take care. And... Hang on here. I got to say something. You noticed that was that was a messed up audio thing there, didn't you? Ah, boy. Sorry about that. Let's try this exit again. Let's turn on the music first. Okay, there we go. Let's take two. Take care. God bless. God bless.